0: Hi there. Welcome to Wooden Teeth. My name's Jake Williams coming at you from the Wooden Teeth headquarters here in Denver, Colorado. Where are you? Where are you? Are you, is this, is this a sleep aid for you? Are you in bed trying to go to sleep? It's okay. It's okay if that's the case. Maybe you're at the gym or in the car. If you're at the gym and you're on the treadmill, don't, don't be distracted. Don't look down. Just keep looking forward. Don't fall. Good. So on the pod today, we have Marion Nessel. She has authored a new book called Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. Food, you probably won't be surprised to hear, is a big business. And influencing the scientific research, sometimes scientific research should be and I'm doing air quotes, you can't see me but I'm doing air quotes, should be in air quotes, is often a, a great way to catalyze the sale of their products. that isn't necessarily in the best interest of public health and so Marion's going to kind of take us behind the scenes on that in this interview as she does in the book which is brilliant I read it you should go out and get it uh, so let's get right to it let's talk to Marion Nessel, who I called out in her office in New York Welcome, Marion Nessel. Glad you're with us. Glad to be here. Am I calling your office at NYU right now? Where are you? You are. Okay, and I, I know I visited you there once before you teach there, and it seems like you have a lot of wonderful, bright, young public health nerds hovering around you. Is, is that accurate?
1: Uh, that's why I teach.
0: Good, good. So, I wanted to talk to you about your new book, Unsavory Truth. And for those who are listening are unfamiliar with the broader scope of your work, this is just the latest in the series of books that you've written about nutrition and politics and policy. How does this book fit in with your overall canon?
1: Well, it's a direct outgrowth of my previous book, Soda Politics Taking on Big Soda and Winning. Uh, In that book, I looked at Coca-Cola's funding of research on nutrition and health and Notice that Coca-Cola was funding studies that um, to demonstrate that sugar sweetened beverages have no effect on obesity, diets, or type two diabetes, or anything else that's bad. That any evidence to the contrary is so wrong that you can ignore it, um, and that exercise is more important than uh, what you eat in obesity. And so I was kind of paying attention to that, Um, and then a couple of things happened that made me think another book was absolutely necessary. One was that I started collecting examples of studies funded by other food companies um, and I was seeing them because I was kind of ready for it. When because of the soda politics book, I started running across studies funded by lots of different food companies and trade associations. Almost all of them with results that were predictable from who the sponsor was, and you could figure out that they were industry funded from their title because who else would do research like that? And at the end, I did that for a year. And at the end of that year, I had 168 studies um, funded by food companies, with ref- and 156 of them had results favorable to the sponsors' interest. Only 12 did not, um, even though I asked people to send in examples. They're just they're just hard to find. And this wasn't the systematic study, but as it turned out, um, its results were very typical of the systematic studies that have been done. And then in the middle of all of that, while that was in progress, the New York Times came out with a investigative report on Coca-Cola's funding of a group called the Global Energy Balance Network. Uh these were investigators who were arguing that physical activity was more important than what you eat um in obesity and um they forgot to mention that they were funded by Coca-Cola. Um uh, you know just a mere lapse. So the New York Times found out about that and wrote this big investigative report on it. I was quoted in it, and as a result of that, I got calls from reporters the next week, actually quite a large number of reporters, and they were shocked. They were shocked that Coca-Cola would fund research so obviously in its self-interest. They were shocked that investigators would take money from Coca-Cola for doing that. And they were shocked that universities would allow their faculty to do something like this. And I thought, holy smoke, I've got another book to write.
0: Yeah, you know, the whole GEBN Coca Cola front group story that broke in the times um, affected us back here at Healthier Colorado in um, a couple different ways. First, that was roughly concurrent to the time when we were working to pass the sugary drinks tax in Boulder, which Coca Cola was funding the opposition to. Um, Also, some of the money for GEBN ran through the University of Colorado. So there was a couple different connections to that. We wrote a couple different pieces at the time um, that highlighted this unfortunate connection between the university and Coca-Cola and GEBN. But in the end, I'm I'm just happy that the university returned the money and everything turned out for the better.
1: Yeah, the university returned a million dollar grant
0: to Coca-Cola,
1: and the um, the article had a big effect on Coca-Cola. The company changed its practices. It said it would be transparent about who it funded, uh, both groups and individuals, and it has absolutely done that. And you can Google Coca-Cola transparency and go on their website and scroll through the list so you can see everybody that they give money to.
0: It's kind of fun. Yeah, you kind of pick up where you left off in some respects in this book on Coca-Cola. And I was especially intrigued by an anecdote you share early in the book about how the Russian hack of John Podesta's emails during the 2016 presidential election turned out to have a connection back to you and Coca-Cola. Can you share that with folks?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was the most bizarre thing. Um, You know, when um, uh, the papers started announcing that the Russian government had been involved in hacking the emails and in trying to influence the 2016 election, there were, there were emails that were from a lot of people involved who were, that were posted on WikiLeaks. But there also was a separate set of emails, the ones about George Soros and a bunch of others that were posted on a new website called DC Leaks. Um, that seemed to come from the Russians also. And just by coincidence, there was a set of emails posted on the DC League site from a woman named Capricia Marshall who worked with Hillary Clinton on her campaign and who, while she was working on the Hillary Clinton campaign, was also consulting for Coca-Cola and getting a 7000 a month retainer for doing that. Um, and we know about that because it's in the emails and I heard about the emails from two different sources um, I heard from Russ Green at CrossFit who said Marion you're in the emails and sent them to me and then I heard from Kyle's sister uh, who Uh, runs a group called um, Ninjas for Health who sent me the same message. Marion, you're in the emails. And I thought, what? What am I doing in the Hillary Clinton emails or in these Coca-Cola emails, these ones between Capricia Marshall and this vice president at Coca-Cola? And it turns out that this referred to uh, something that I had been doing early in 2016. I was a visiting scholar at the University of Sydney in Australia, working in the group of a woman named Lisa Biro, who works on conflicts of interest in research. And while I was there, I was invited to give a talk to the Nutrition Association of Australia, A small group at the university and uh, somebody told me just before my talk, you know, there's somebody from Coca-Cola in the audience. Are you okay about that? And I thought, of course I'm okay. I had just published Soda Politics. It had just come out a couple of months earlier and I just assumed that somebody from Coca-Cola was at every talk I gave. I didn't give it another thought. And it turns out this person uh, from, uh, was a public relations, was at a public relations agency. Is he working for Coca-Cola? She was taking notes on my talk, very good notes, actually. And those notes got incorporated into an email that she sent to whoever was the next person on the chain of command. And along with um, some recommendations that Coca-Cola monitor my activities in Australia, um, pay attention to who I was talking to, and what talks I was giving, and also monitor the activities of Lisa Biro. And that resulted in a, in a full-page article in the Sydney Morning Herald about Coca-Cola spying on Lisa Biro. It was kind of fun.
0: Yeah, that's just one example among many other more troubling ones around the world, including Mexico and Colombia, where there's been spying and people threatened with violence.
1: Spyware, they had Spyware attached to their phones, the soda tax advocates in Mexico. Um, But I loved, I have to say I loved these emails because um, they solved a huge problem for me. I couldn't figure out how to start this book because the emails also uh, dealt with a lot of other issues that I discuss in the book. Um, In this case, it was Coca-Cola's involvement with researchers involvement with reporters who were writing about research, and a lot of other things that I discuss in the book. And all of that came out after Soda Politics came out. So I have a whole chapter on Coca-Cola.
0: I want to get to some of these other industries. But before I do, I also caught one other anecdote in the book that I found interesting slash amusing, in which you are giving a radio interview about nutrition. And in the interview, you said that soda contains sugar and water but is otherwise nutritionally useless. And then you heard from the sugar industry. Could you share that anecdote as well?
1: Oh yeah. This is a story I tell in my book, Food Politics, um, and in in the later editions of food politics, which first came out in two thousand and two. And when food politics came out, I was invited on a lot of radio programs and on one of them I said sugar that, you know, soft drinks are good thing to stop drinking if you're worried about obesity because they contain sugar and water. Sugar singular and water and nothing else. And the sugar association's lawyer wrote me a letter saying, um, you know, we're going to take legal action. You've defamed the family farmers who produce, um, sugar. Um, because you, as a leading nutritionist, should know better. You know that soft drinks don't contain sugar. For years, they've contained high fructose corn syrup. So, you know, my reaction was I burst out laughing. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And I started showing it around. I said, this is the, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Wait till you see this. Um, I thought it was funny because table sugar is glucose and fructose stuck together, and high fructose corn syrup is glucose and fructose separated in the body they they're really the same and they're pretty indistinguishable um, so they're basically the same thing It's just that they they're represented by two different trade associations, and the sugar association was protecting the honor of people who do cane who grow sugar cane and sugar beets. Um, And I had to do a whole lot of legal stuff around it. I had to respond to it point by point. Those letters are posted on my website at the bottom of the media section. Um, If anybody wants to read them, I think they're really funny.
0: And the full title of your book is Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. Um, And as you cover in the book, one of the main avenues that they use to skew the science is through funding studies that cover the products that they sell. Could you provide some examples of how food companies fund research that influences uh, the results, especially for people who aren't really familiar with this area?
1: It's a complicated story. and. The um most of what we know about the effects of, fund, of food industry funding on research come from studies of the tobacco, chemical, and pharmaceutical drug industries. And I spend um a chapter in the book sort of reviewing the literature on uh drug company research. And what that research shows is that studies funded by drug companies uh, generally come out with results that favor the drug company's specific brand name drug over generics that may be cheaper or even more effective. The the way the influence is exerted is invisible and it's invisible because the recipients of the funding don't recognize that they're being influenced they didn't intend to be influenced um, and they deny that they were influenced So it's unconscious unintentional and unrecognized and then most of the influence occurs in the way that the research question is asked there's a big difference between asking for research. We will, I get letters all the time, for example, from trade associations from various foods saying we're looking for research proposals to demonstrate the benefits of our products for health. Sometimes they're very specific about what kind of health benefits they're looking for. That's a very different question than saying we're interested in finding out the effect of our product on health that may seem like a subtle distinction but it will greatly influence the way the research question is designed and the way and the way the study is designed it's very very easy to design research to give you an answer that you want um because you have a lot of choices to make about how you design the study how long you run it um what kind of subjects you have in your trial, what your control groups are, what the control diets are, how you measure these things, all of those are things that consciously or unconsciously you can skew in order to get the answer you want. Um, and And so that's what you get from the... Uh, from the drug industry studies, and we had a really great example recently, which was a study funded by the alcohol industry, big alcohol, if you like. Five companies got together and gave the National Institutes of Health $67 million to do a long-term controlled clinical trial on um, the effects of one drink of alcohol a day on heart disease risk. And a reporter from the New York Times wrote about it, and after her story came out, she got a confidential tip from somebody at NIH saying that that study was not as neutral as it appeared to be. And she investigated and used Freedom of Information Act to get emails and in fact was able to demonstrate that investigators at NIH had solicited the money from the alcohol industry and had essentially promised them that the study would come out exactly the way the the industry wanted it, which was to demonstrate that one drink a day would um, reduce the risk for heart disease. They were not going to run the study long enough to demonstrate that alcohol increases the risk for breast cancer in women, which it does, um and there were other manipulations in the study design that would keep uh, that that would balance things in such a way that the balance would favor a reduction in heart disease risk um and this was when this was revealed by the new york times nih was as you might expect horrified um i guess the top management, didn't know anything about it. They immediately started an investigation. They stopped recruitment into the trial. When the investigation came out, it was absolutely scathing about the way the NIH investigators had behaved, and the trial was stopped.
0: Yeah, you know, when I was reading your book and finding out more about the -the behind-the-scenes mechanics about how all this was done, I was just thinking about the example you shared as well as The example of chocolate, I feel like every other year we hear some sort of story about how chocolate is actually good for you and it's okay to at least eat a small amount, just like it's okay to have a drink a day, it helps your heart health or whatever. It feels like this tactic is better advertising than uh, actual advertising is at probably a fraction of the cost.
1: Oh, every time I give a talk, I ask the audience, how many of you think that dark chocolate is going to reduce your risk for heart disease and every hand in the audience goes up? And that, you know, I give Mars a lot of credit for that because Mars invested millions of dollars in research to demonstrate that the flavanols in chocolate reduce the risk for heart disease, never mind that the flavanols are destroyed in the production of chocolate and that you would have to eat pounds of it a day for it to do any good. Um, and in fact, Mars now says we're not trying to advertise chocolate as health food we're not even claiming that chocolate is healthy um, we're now selling flavanol supplements and doing research on flavanol supplements but by that time the word was well out and everybody believes that dark bitter chocolate is good for you you know whether it is or not is questionable it's candy for heaven's sakes and candy is candy but the candy industry has a huge problem people don't eat enough candy They want people to eat more. That's their job. You know, I'm fond of saying that food companies are not social service agencies. They're businesses with stockholders to please. Their job is to sell more, not less. And public health is really not relevant to what they're doing. Um, So candy companies have funded research for a long time. I quote research um, that, uh, uh, is sponsored by the confectionery Association, um, and that those those studies demonstrate that children who eat candy are healthier than children who don't eat candy and have less obesity and less the signs of type two diabetes and so forth um, you know i as I said it's easy to design studies to give you answers like this. It depends on what your controls are.
0: you make some comparisons in the book between the approach that pharmaceutical companies and the tobacco industry has taken to influence uh, science. But I was also thinking about another comparison uh, between the food industry and what happens in politics with political campaign disclosures. During campaigns, the general rule is that we need to disclose the source of the funding for the message that is being presented that is intended to impact the election so that the receiver of the message can use that information um, to discern you know, the uh, intent and potential bias that's conveyed by the message that's being received. So my question for you is, is disclosure enough in this context, the context of food, if we just start making it clear who paid for these studies, is that enough to mitigate the bias that may exist?
1: Oh, absolutely not. But it's an it's an absolutely necessary first step. It's a step that is not very well adhered to. Um, the disclosure business begins in 1984 when the New England Journal of Medicine just so outraged by the drug industry's efforts to influence physicians' prescription practices. And I should say that It's really easy to do that and there is research going back 60, 70 years demonstrating that all it takes is a pen and a pad of paper with a drug logo on it to induce a, or a meal costing $13 or less to induce a physician to change prescription practices and if you ask the physician if the practices change, the doctor doesn't even realize it. It just happens on in this bizarre, unconscious way, making it very difficult to deal with. So the New England Journal of Medicine, out, outraged by all of this and what seemed to be just outrageous conflicts of interest and nobody doing anything about them, said that every study in the New England Journal, every commentary, um, the authors had to disclose who paid for their work and also had to disclose any conflicts of interest that they had, financial ties to the funder or companies like the funder. Um and then other journals followed suit over the years. Nutrition journals were later in determin in, in beginning to require disclosure statements, but they were earlier than science journals. Science journals were the latest or were the last. To begin to, to require it because the scientists didn't realize that there was any influence, didn't think that they were influenced and said science is science, why are you accusing us of uh, being influenced um, but now, but by now there's so much evidence, so much evidence that the influence is there that it 's hard to argue about, so uh, there is disclosure required, not everybody adheres to it, and I give many examples in the book of um non-disclosure and then somebody finds out about it and then they disclose, um, that kind of thing. And there have been studies of disclosure, and those studies demonstrate that a large proportion of people who are supposed to disclose don't. um, One of the things that... uh, the Coca-Cola's transparency database allows is a comparison of who Coca-Cola says it funds and who the investigators say funds them, and there've been analyses of that that show that it's not adhered to very well. Almost everybody believes that disclosure is a necessary first step, and we're not even getting that. Certainly, at the meetings that I go to of nutrition researchers, the disclosures and everybody is supposed to disclose. Uh, The disclosures are perfunctory or given in such a so rapidly that you can't even see who they're paid by. Um, And and so I don't think there's a strong adherence to it. It's not part of the culture. Um, And I have to say, disclosure is embarrassing, um, one of the things I do in this book is I try to disclose every instance of food industry connection that I possibly could, the gifts, the meetings, the travel, um, and I talk about my own policy of trying to deal with it um, you know, I want to have relationships with food companies because I need to know what they're doing, and I don't know how else I would do it. And I'm an academic; I'm not a wealthy person. So, if I go to a meeting, I'm I'm invited for a meeting. I expect them to pay my travel. What I've developed as a policy is the policies. I just don't take personal funding. So, if there's an honorarium, I donate the honorarium either to the n y u library or to the department in some way now that i'm reti- officially retired um so i don't you know i don't argue that this is a perfect policy, but it certainly forces me to think about whether i'm being influenced or what the purpose of these meetings is. And to sort of think it through ahead of time, I find it quite helpful. Um, And I think everybody should have a personal policy that they, you know, that it's explicit and that they adhere to about how to deal with it. I can't think of any easy way to manage it because if the influence is unconscious and people aren't aware of it, it's pretty hard to put a stop to it. How would you do that? So, My first step is always be
0: aware that there's a problem. Speaking of the personal, how does this book and this line of work for you affect your personal relationships with colleagues? Uh, You mentioned earlier in the interview that people are offended when these type of disclosures are made, or if uh, people perceive that an accusation is made directly or implicitly, perhaps, in the course of examining this issue what is your personal experience been with your colleagues as you pursued this work?
1: Well, this book has only it's only been out for a month, so it's a little early. Um, I've had one major objection um, from, I, I mean, essentially a threatened lawsuit um, for somebody who's from someone who's mentioned in the book and didn't like the way I had done that. That's being worked out now. Um I have very respectful and cordial relationships with with food industry executives so they're not a problem um colleagues I think take it very personally um and there's a big argument in the field that any questioning of food industry sponsorship is an ad hominem attack, a personal attack on the researcher. I certainly don't mean it that way. But I do mention individuals by name, um, quite a number of them, because um, they exemplify what they did exemplify certain actions that concern me. And I tried to take the arguments of people who disagree with my position on this i try to take those arguments very seriously and deal with them one by one i have a whole chapter on dealing with the arguments in favor of taking food industry funding like it has no effect on my research well we already know about that one you know the science is science i'm not if the science is okay what's wrong with it? um it doesn't influence me um you know those kinds of things so i go through all of that other kinds of Um, biases are just as biasing or even more biasing than industry biasing. Why are you picking on industry biasing as as a specific case when there are lots of other sources of bias? That's true, but the other sources of bias are sort of built into the way science is done, and industry funding is not. You can do science without You can do science without getting industry funding. It's pretty hard to do science without biases.
0: Right. So we talked about disclosures and how it's not done enough. And even if it was done industry-wide, it still wouldn't be enough. But you also say that these relationships between food companies and science aren't inherently problematic on a blanket basis. So what's the dividing line between acceptable scenarios in which food companies fund research and unacceptable ones.
1: Well, what you want as a researcher is you want an investigator-initiated project that's basic science open ended. Um you want the food industry funding to have absolutely no strings attached, not even a tiny little thread. Um so in situations where you set it up so that the funder gives you the money, disappears, you have nothing whatsoever to do with the funder until your papers published. Um that seems to me to be reasonably protective and there are, and I, but I give examples in the book of people saying in the, disclosing in their papers that they were funded by some food company and the funder had nothing to do with the design, conduct or presentation of the research and it turned out when emails were obtained that that wasn't true. So as a reader, you have no way of knowing. And I've been asked by researchers who want to take food industry funding what they should do. And, you know, my first advice is, is this an investigator-initiated project? Is this something that you want to do because you're interested in the outcome? You're not designing a study to show benefits, the funder is going to have really nothing to do. A firewall between you and the funder, you will not speak to any of the, to the funder during the entire time that you're doing the study. Um, you know, that has at least some possibility of, um, you know, of being, a of permitting lack of, but remember the influence is unconscious, so it's difficult. Um, but I do have examples. I mean, there's a famous example, which was the discovery of trans of the evil effects of trans fats by investigators in the Netherlands. Uh, that, that's, those studies were funded by Unilever. Well, Unilever had a vested interest in finding out what the effects of trans fats were because they were making margarines. Um that had you know with, with i mean in a sense they got the answer they wanted because they make margarines that are not made with hydrogenated fats but are done in some other way, so they had trans fat free margarines um but that was very important research funded by a food company so it's possible that there are exceptions and that useful things can come out of this but it's pretty hard to predict and the vast majority of industry funded research is not basic it's used for marketing and i was told by people at the department of agriculture which partners a lot with food companies that they're doing studies in partnership with food companies that they would never do on their own. Because they're not, they're not questions that are of vital interest to the Department of Agriculture. They're questions of vital interest to the food companies that are paying for the research. And then I've had food companies say, well we want research. How are we supposed to get it? I said, well if you want marketing
0: research,
1: fund it. And don't publish it in health or science
0: journals. Does this issue relate at all to other kind of big problematic issues in academia, um, such as, you know, studies that are being published often present results that cannot be replicated or certain studies can't get published if they confirm, for example, what we already knew? Does this relate at all to that?
1: Well, there's that, and then there's also the publication bias for negative studies. But the best example I can think of is a Coca-Cola example again. And I hate to pick on Coca-Cola because it's only one of many companies that are doing this, but it got caught. It got caught um, in... In the emails, and it got caught in two different sets or three different sets of hacked emails, no one set of hacked emails from the Russians, but it also got caught in FOIA emails that reporters FOIA emails between uh Coca-Cola and Jim Hill at the University of Colorado, for example, and those emails are revelatory about the interaction between the company and researchers. I mean, they really are absolutely revelatory um, So And then because Coca-Cola has this transparency initiative, it was possible for investigators to ask the question, um, is there a funding effect in studies of whether sugar-sweetened beverages affect um, obesity and type 2 diabetes? And the investigators found 60 studies that met their criteria, um, that that looked at the question does is there an association between sugar sweetened consumption of sugar sweetened beverages and obesity and type 2 diabetes they They had these sixty studies, and i don 't remember the exact number but um twenty five had uh results that said no, there was absolutely no relationship between sugar sweetened beverages and Obesity and type 2 diabetes and 24 of those were sponsored by food com- by soda companies. 24 out of 25. And the exact opposite occurred in the 35 studies that said yes, there's a relationship. Yes, they're associated and of those only one was funded by a soda company. You can bet that that investigator never got funded by a soda company again. So there's so much evidence like that floating around that you cannot argue um, that, yes, there are, you can argue that there are exceptions, that not all industry-funded studies come out with results that favor the sponsor, but most of them do.
0: So I fear that you might depress me with this answer, but... For a regular person who's buying a product from the grocery store and wants to know more about the nutritional value of that product, where should they begin to figure that out?
1: No, oh, they should look at the nutrition facts label on the back of every package. Um, and that will tell you what the nutrition issues are. Um, the question that I think you're asking is you're picking up a product at the grocery store and you want to know whether it's going to help you reduce your risk for heart disease, cancer, or obesity, or whatever. That's not a reasonable question. Because if you're like most people, you're eating many, many, many different kinds of foods, and to think that one food is going to make a significant, measurable difference in your disease risk doesn't make any sense. I mean, we know what healthy diets are. We really do. Um, there, uh, you know, there. Uh, Michael Pollan can do it in seven words: eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Really, it's that simple. If you're eating a diet that contains real foods, mostly unprocessed or certainly not ultra-processed foods or heavily processed foods, and you're eating real foods, you're not eating too many calories for your body weight, um, and you've got lots of fruits and vegetables in there, you're doing fine. Relax. Enjoy what you're eating. Don't worry about it.
0: Well... That was actually way more positive than I expected. So thank you for that. Um, Unsavory Truth How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. An awesome new book by Marion Nessel. Thank you, Marion.
1: My pleasure.
0: There it is, our first ever book interview. That was fun. And it makes me, it forces me to read, which I've been guilty in recent years of not doing enough of. Actually, we have another book interview coming up here in the next couple weeks. Won't spoil uh, the surprise about who it is, but it's a good one. Check it out. Hey, if you haven't already, please subscribe. And please rate us too. Give us, you know, a nice shiny five-star rating. Any feedback for us, you can hit us up at our website, Wooden Teeth Show. Dot com or on Twitter or handle is wooden teeth show. Alright, I'll see you later.